are pressing pause on our series Light in the Darkness tonight and um, once a term we try and address what we call a tough question. So for those of you who've been around for a little while you may remember we, we um, looked at the environment, uh, we asked the question is Christianity sexist um, and we're going to address a different question tonight and the way this is going to work is uh, Rory hopefully has a slide for us with a a mobile number on it, uh, which we're going to put up. If you've got that, Rory, brilliant, there we are. Um, So um, I'm going to introduce our speaker in a minute. In fact, we're going to have a little interview. Um, And throughout this session, we're going to keep this slide up there, if that's all right, Rory, so we'll just keep it up. And I want to encourage you and invite you to text in any questions you have. So you can text them to that number, If um, you haven't got your phone or you would rather just write one down, please do go to the back. Pete at the back will give you a piece of paper and a pen and then you can come and give your questions to Sarah at the front here. Do you want to give us a wave, Sarah? So um, the idea is that this is about you asking questions as much as it is about us hearing from our speaker tonight. Um, Now, tonight we're going to be um, looking at the whole area of mental health. And uh, I probably don't need to even tell you, but the statistics are that one in four of us will, in any given year, suffer with some form of mental health problem. And it might be anxiety, it might be depression, or it could be some form of self-harm or suicidal thoughts. And it is an immense privilege tonight that we have Will van der Hart uh, with us. Will is um, a father, he is a vicar, Uh, he's an author of a number of books and I've got some of them here um, which we have in our bookshop, Uh, so he's written The Guilt Book, The Worry Book and The Perfectionism Book and I've read all of them and they are really helpful. And I think to different degrees, we all struggle with these and, and other areas where we feel a sense of anxiety and, and worry. So I just really commend those books to you. Um, so do please um, buy them uh, and, and use them as a help in, in your life. Um, so we are hugely privileged to have Will here. He's also the director. If you look behind you, you'll see a banner that says Mind and Soul. And Will is the, one of the directors of Mind and Soul Foundation. And there's some leaflets um, just by the banner which give you more information about what that foundation does. So can we please give a very warm welcome to Will van der Haar. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, David, so much for having me here at Greyfriars. It's been a great day. It's been great having you here. Will's done, he's on to his third service. That's good, isn't it? Very impressive. Thank you, Will. It's been a pleasure. Um, now, Will, uh, I think, it, so I've known Will for a number of years, and once I'd read his books, I remember turning to you and saying, you know, where, did, where does this come from? Why have you written these books in particular on these topics? And I remember you saying that, in part, it had come out of your own place of suffering and brokenness. And I just wonder whether you could just begin by sharing with us a little bit of what your story is. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess that um, I had massive aversion to anything to do with mental health. Um, I was like, I'm a very keen sportsman and I was um, spiritually very keen on apologetics. So I spent a lot of time with the Zacharias Trust. And if you'd said to me, 
um, at the start of my ministry and have a, a, a national ministry around mental emotional health, I would have run a mile. But um, you know, when I, um, looking back growing up, I actually had um, quite a kind of family context for mental health. Um, my mum was definitely sort of anxious and bordering on the depressed at times, although I couldn't have described it to you like that. My grandmother was probably the most obvious member of our family who struggled and um, she would, we described it as grandma's taken to her bed and she would sort of disappear for half a day or even for a couple of days and would sort of lie down and um, you know she had quite a a big sherry habit in the morning and uh, we knew that there were some special tablets that she would take but it was all kind of very posh and hush hush and you know no one talked about it and it was sort of polite language we all sort of danced around until her mood improved and then we'd get on with life as normal as a child I remember I I, I come from a Christian family I remember I describe it as praying my way to school at the time but latterly I realized I was actually just worrying my way to school and I'd sort of externalize it like a prayer which seemed to work but actually I'm not sure I was actually praying I was just sort of worrying out loud to God um all that said, I had no real awareness around mental health until um, I obviously did some pastoral tra- training and I was exposed to it as hosp- hospital chaplaincy training. But for myself, it wasn't really until um, 2005 when I was called up in the London bombings at the edge of a road station that, that things really changed for me. I dropped my wife off at Paddington Station that morning and we lived directly opposite the Edgeware Road Station in a small flat there. And when I dropped my wife off then walked back to my flat, between that time the bomb had gone off in Edgeware Road. And um, I didn't, we didn't know what it was. Initially the policeman that I spoke to said that they thought it was an electrical fault on the track. Anyway, I ended up putting on my dog collar, wearing it like some sort of super superhero outfit. I don't wear it very often but I kind of had some feeling of you know, invincibility when I put it on and I was going to go and help um, and when I put it on and came back out I went under the cordon which had just appeared in that time and I remember there was a, a man running towards me covered in soot and, and, and looking very distressed and just saying there are bodies, there are bodies in the station, there are bodies in the station and I, uh, he was running one way and I was sort of running the other towards what was going on um, but I had no, no context for what was going to happen or what I was going to see or experience our church little hall directly opposite the station ended up becoming the sort of triage centre for the police and emergency services. I was inadvertently cordoned into that area and sort of became mother hen clucking around, praying for people and getting hot drinks and doing all sorts of innocuous things. But at the same time, experienced a lot of really terrifying things. And um, our church one was awarded a commissioner's commendation. I was given an assistant commissioner's commendation for the work we did that day which all sounds very grand but we really didn't know what on earth we were doing and three months later I started suddenly having terrible panic attacks terrible crippling anxiety was shaking felt freezing all the time had all sorts of strange kind of emotional experiences um, and that was the beginning of an anxiety-based breakdown similar to sort of a PTSD style experience that led me to then feel desperately depressed because I thought I was losing my mind and um, it was pretty chastening and a really pretty difficult six-month period of my, of, my, of my life and of my, of my ministry. And, and in the middle of this, um, what was sort of, if I would say, the church's response? How, how did people respond to you? Um, and, and what was going on between you and God in the midst of all of that? Well, 
um, ironically, so I, I, I had my first sort of set of panic attacks on a Saturday, and my wife is brilliant in a, in a crisis, uh, organised for us to go to the out-of-hours hospital service in, in St Mary's, and a very kind doctor there said, look, you're having anxiety attacks, this is probably related to some of your experience, you know, help me, um, and then I went back to the doctor on the Monday, saw a really brilliant non-Christian GP who was fantastically helpful and compassionate and helped me realise that this was, you know, I was experiencing a mental health problem. At the same time, as a curate and, you know, charismatic clergy person, I was engaging with my own incumbent, my own vicar of my church, and, and the associate vicar. And my vicar, my incumbent, he... he um, really just was in denial about mental health altogether. So he, he said I was just tired and, and if I could just, you know, if I just had some rest and went to sleep for a bit, I'd be fine. So he said, you know, it's just, you're just tired. And I remember him being in sort of my study saying, you know, you're just tired. If you just go to sleep, you know, just rest, you'll be fine. And alternatively, the associate vicar, who was very prophetic and, 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 and really into supernatural healing, he thought the devil had got into me. So he was doing the opposite. He was saying, right, we've got to cast the devil out of you. So he was putting the cross between me and everything. And he was desperately trying to get the cross between me and whatever's going on inside my head. And so I had one, one, one of my colleagues and friends who was you know, denying what I was experiencing. The other one who was, who was really claiming that everything that I was experiencing was entirely supernatural. And um, that was very confusing and actually made me feel increasingly isolated because I, I didn't understand what was happening. On, on one level, I was asking, I was terrified about the idea that this was spiritual. And I was also terrified about the idea that this was all just to do with the fact I hadn't slept enough. So it was all pretty terrifying, really. Um, and I realized latterly that actually those two positions actually marked out the church's views around mental health. That half the church were in denial that mental health issues actually exist at all. And the other half believed that they're all supernatural. And if we could just pray enough and have enough faith, and then it'll all just go away. And that's pretty isolating for a quarter of the congregations of our churches who are all thinking this is a genuine you know, physical, psychological, neurochemical issue, and uh, I'm not quite sure where to go from here. Yeah. Um, we're going to have a look at some scriptures, if that's all right. So you might want to grab a, a Bible either in front of you in one of the seats or in your phone. Um, and we're going to just have a brief look at um, the Sermon on the Mount so Matthew 5 if you can flick through which in the Bibles the church Bibles page 969 um, Matthew 5 um, verse 14 page 969 so I mean as many of you know we're in this series at the moment called Light in the Darkness and um, I had the privilege of being in Israel this week and was standing at the very spot where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount and just reading these words as he says, you are the light of the world, verse 14. And then if you look down to verse 16, um, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Uh, we read these words and there's that sense of being called into the light, us being the light, but I've known many people who would describe what they're going through as a, as a deep sense of, of darkness. And then if we turn on to, um, just over the page, to the end of chapter 5, um, verse 48, we read this verse, be perfect, this is chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then, as we know in chapter 6, from verse 25 onwards, Jesus is teaching about uh, to his disciples, saying, do not worry. And we read these verses about light, and Jesus is teaching there, saying, be perfect and do not worry. How are we to interpret this when we look around and we see the reality either in our lives or the lives of the people we love is actually very different. Well, you asked me just before we began looking at this page about uh, not just how the church responded, but, but how I felt God was part of my story. And, you know, despite the difficulty I had in terms of discussing what was going on with my church leaders and colleagues, I was never in any doubt that Jesus was still with me. And my experience of emotional breakdown and anxiety and panic was difficult indeed, but, but there was never a sense or never part of my experience that said that Jesus isn't with me, Jesus is, is, is with us. And one of the challenges that we have as Christians in understanding mental health is the fact that in Jesus' healing ministry, there's never an instant in which it's clear that Jesus healed someone specifically of a mental health problem. Mental health problems weren't diagnosed, if you like, or described in these, these kind of terms in, in biblical times. But that's not to say that the Bible doesn't tell us an awful lot about mental health. The challenge, again, we face is so often that, that we make simplistic interpretations of very obvious, apparently obvious texts, which actually continue to stigmatize Christians who are struggling with mental health problems and make them feel more isolated and more ostracized when, in fact, God wants the exact opposite. So if you take, for example, um, this amazing verse, Matthew 5, uh, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfectionism is rife in the church. People believe in grace but they secretly believe if they could be a bit more perfect God would love them a little bit more and um, actually perfectionism as Annie Wilson Schaaf says is self-abuse of the highest order there's no place for perfectionism in the church perfectionism is the is the opposite of grace it would be a great irony wouldn't it not if um, if the Sermon on the Mount which is the most grace-filled piece of Jesus teaching which invites all of the broken and wounded to participate fully in the kingdom of God for the very end of that chapter for him to suddenly say by the way if you want any of this you've got to be perfect you know it goes it flies entirely in the face of grace to say you know here is the blessed sprawl of the broken but I'm going to give you with one hand and I'm going to take it all away again at the last minute in fact the word perfect here in the NIV is, is poorly translated the best translation for the word in the Greek teleoi is to be complete not to be perfect now you can understand why the translators have used the word perfect because a puzzle that has all its pieces is a perfect puzzle a completed perfect a completed puzzle is a is a perfect puzzle but the word for complete and the word for perfection are two slightly different things as we understand them if you look at the real meaning of this text, it's be complete, therefore, in Christ, and your heavenly Father will see you as perfect. And the Weymouth New, Tra- New Testament translation is a far better translation of the same text. As I say, the word teleoi is translated in the Greek as complete everywhere else in the New Testament. If you think about that, it's a far more grace-filled piece of teaching, because we are all deficient, and Christ, through his death and resurrection life, has made us complete, and God sees us as perfect or complete when our lives are hidden in the life of Christ and so this isn't a gospel of perfectionism that says we need to be perfect it's a gospel of grace that says actually in our imperfections 
We can be hidden in the body of Christ and therefore we're seen as perfect in the eyes of God. It's just a good example of how our mental health is valued by scripture and it's not brutalized by it. If you go on to the worry passage, um, everyone has worries and many Christians unfortunately believe that worrying is a sin because they obviously they believe that Jesus has said do not worry and therefore it's like a commandment like one of the ten commandments behind me but actually do not worry is not in the ten commandments do not worry is an encouragement to live a fuller life the life of John ten ten, a life in all its fullness and at the end of the passage it's really interesting here in verse 34 it says therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble as of its own now what's fascinating about this is Jesus is not saying blanket do not worry. What he's actually saying is do not worry about tomorrow. And I find it comedic that Jesus said do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. I can kind of imagine him smiling and in the Sermon on the Mount you know, whilst he's up there saying look guys tomorrow's going to worry about itself. My encouragement is to, is to think about the issues of today because they're the pressing issues. He says each day has enough troubles of its own. Now Jesus doesn't expect the people he's teaching not to worry about today but what he wants them to do is to deal with the issues of today and not spend his, their time worrying about the issues of tomorrow that probably are never going to happen. Corrie ten Boom says that you know, worry doesn't strip tomorrow of its problems, it strips to, today of its joy. And actually the encouragement here is in line with what we call cognitive behavioural therapy which is a kind of gold standard GP based treatment for your mental health alongside medication. And CBT helps you to recognise those things which are patterns of thought, running away with you, catastrophizing about the potential problems of tomorrow, and actually exchanging that focus onto the issues of today. Today's problems are normally resolved by problem-solving techniques, but tomorrow's problems are not solved in that way. So this is a really great sage piece of mental health advice from Jesus. It's not, though, a condemnation for people who are struggling with worry. Now, Will, um, we have a friend in common uh, who, when, when I said I was going to be interviewing Will, he said, you've got to get him to talk about black balloons and sticky hands. And I had no idea what he's talking about. But these, I think, are some practical tips. Is that right? Can you tell us? Yes. I mean, I think that it's true to say that many of us here tonight will be struggling with anxiety. And again, as Christians, we can feel badly about that, sometimes unnecessarily badly about that. We need to know that Christ is with us, that he loves us, and we can be confident of his presence with us. But sometimes, again, we use scripture um, in ways which we believe are virtuous, but actually they end up inhibiting our mental health more than liberating us. And one way in which that's often common for those people who are struggling with anxious thoughts is to try and take every thought captive because that's what Paul appears to instruct us to do in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. And um, I often hear people struggling with anxiety disorders having been advised to take every thought captive and therefore somehow they will overwhelm the issues of anxiety in their minds. The great difficulty here is that for many people struggling with anxiety, particularly a form of anxiety we call obsessive compulsive disorder or obsessional thinking, to, to take the advice of taking every thought captive is actually to become captive to the thoughts that we're taking captive. And so rather than being a liberating experience, it would actually be the most terrifying and terrible experience of a person's life. If you actually look at the text, the text isn't referring to anxious, intrusive thoughts. 
Instead, Paul's talking about people who are arrogant and have got arguments and pretensions about the faith. It says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every captive, every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, what Paul's doing here is he's, he's defending his ministry against people who are theologically and theoretically critiquing the gospel. And he's saying, actually, there's, a, there's another way here. So this isn't mental health advice. Um, but in the spirit of the scriptures, what we need to do is understand how we can apply this advice for our mental wellness. And I would say that Jesus indicates that there's a difference between the law and the spirit of the law. Like when the donkey falls into a well on the Sabbath, you don't just leave it there. That's the law. The spirit of the law says, rescue the donkey. Get on with your day. Um, and in the same way with, um, with this text... For those people here today who struggle with intrusive and frightening thoughts, that's what I call sticky hand syndrome. If you take that thought captive, your hands get a little bit more sticky. And rather than liberating you, you've got a thought stuck to your hand and you can't kind of shake it off. And then annoyingly, you try and take another thought captive and that also gets stuck to your hand. And you can't kind of shake that off either. And the more you grab a hold of these thoughts, the more stuck to you they become. And therefore, the more anxious you become and the more inhibited you become. So you actually become slave to these thoughts rather than liberated from these thoughts. Another way of thinking about it is if, imagine I was standing on this stool right now, which I'm not going to do for health and safety reasons. But if I was standing on this stool, imagine my thoughts are are floating out of uh, the ground here as, as represented by yellow and black balloons. Yellow balloons are a sign of God's grace to me. They're positive thoughts and honest thoughts but the black balloons are intrusive negative and frightening thoughts now if I take every thought captive I grab hold of the string of the black balloon now initially that feels powerful and and spiritual and appropriate but the more of the black balloons I grab hold of the less spiritual vision I have to see the yellow balloons and the grace of God to me and ultimately I crowd out my entire vision with black balloons and I don't see any of God's graces to me So in fact, rather than taking every thought captive to become, if you like, liberated, I've taken every thought captive and I've become a captive. The spirit of the law says, let the thought go. Instead, let the black balloons float through your peripheral vision and actually look instead at the yellow balloons or grab hold of them because they're things which will positively influence your mental health. So very often when we're reading scripture as Christians who are wanting to be mentally positive and have a good, healthy outlook as far as mental health is concerned, we have to look at the spirit of what Jesus is saying and the context of the text that we're reading rather than just applying the message. Many Christians come to Minor Cell Foundation to say, I feel really guilty because my vicar said, just stop worrying because it's a lack of trust. Or stop being depressed because you're just lazy. Or, you know, don't be psychotic because you're demonically possessed or you know take every thought captive and and you'll be fine and actually now they've got crippling OCD so we have to we're working to demonstrate the compassion and the wisdom of Jesus as, as far as mental health is concerned and actually I believe that all the gold is in here we just have to know how to interpret it in a way which is healing and, and liberating as Jesus intended it that's brilliant thank you Will um Now, I've just got one more question. Um, So if you uh, folks haven't had a chance, please do text in your questions. Hopefully, we've got quite a few coming in. Um, So my last question, Will, is Mind and Soul uh, works, as I understand it, in part to help 
equip the church, inform the church um, of this whole area of mental health and how we can seek to grow and improve. What are some of the challenges as you look out at the church in the widest sense in this area of mental health and what can we do to help? Well, the church is, I believe, uniquely positioned for Jesus' ministry of compassion to the world. In fact, there are 50,700 churches in the UK and there are only 54 mental health trusts in the UK. And so we are in a unique position to demonstrate the love of Christ for a broken and hurting world. And particularly in this area of mental health, which is so prevalent and so significant in our society, I believe that we can do so much more. It's, it's disappointing and upsetting to me that so many people in the world believe that if they uh, talk about their mental health in church, they're going to get a superficial or a condemnatory response to their condition. It's also disappointing that so many Christians within the church are afraid of talking about their mental health conditions on the basis that they're going to be stigmatized or vilified by others. And so... I think about Jesus' intention that the church might be a place of ministry and of compassion and of belonging. And I long for the church to, if you like, fulfill that mission in the context of mental health. When I first really felt that God was calling me to be an advocate for mental health, it was along the lines of God saying to me, Will, you know, these are my spiritual poor. And I think the church over the ages has been very good at times at, at ministering to the needs of the materially poor. We've provided food and shelter and clothing and housing for thousands and thousands of people. But we haven't been so good at meeting the needs of the emotionally poor. There have been seasons. In fact, the church was really the the first place in which people with mental health issues could find solace. But over the years, we've retracted and withdrawn from that mission. And now, rather than being on the forefront of that mission ministry, we're kind of playing catch-up. And... We are challenged to interpret scripture well and to support the needs of those in our own communities, but also to recognise we've got a unique position to play in society. Um, Clinically, I mean, every clinician knows that those people in their care who are members of church communities will do better statistically than those people outside of church communities. There's something unique about the community that we provide if it's a welcoming and supportive and loving community that helps people recover. And our mandate here isn't just to focus on the mental health issues from a clinical perspective. In fact, the reverse is true. We're here to offer all of those things that people cannot receive in a psychiatric unit in Reading or Royal Barks Hospital or in a GP surgery, which is often deep community and understanding and love and also the power of God's Holy Spirit. What I'm saying here is not that God can't heal today, it's that God does heal today. But it's this... It's this place of welcome and security and understanding that provides the context within which we might encounter God's healing in a new way and where we might be supportive of all of the amazing work that the NHS are doing in the world of mental health. Brilliant well thank you Um, right we're gonna I'm just gonna um, wow that's a long list of questions thank you Sarah brilliant thank you all Um, so let's um, start at the top here we're not going to get through them all, I'm afraid, okay. but we'll, um, we'll work our way down. Um, first question is, how can we best help men, especially not speaking up when they experience mental health issues such as suicide thoughts, suicidal thoughts? 
Well, firstly, to say is suicidal thoughts are very, very common. And again, God isn't offended by suicidal thoughts. If you turn into um, 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, you'll find that Elijah um, there is, is having a, a conversation with God. And it says um, in chapter 19, verse uh, 4, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. You know, God is not offended by suicidal ideation. In fact, you know, anything, far from it. And if you're here today and you're experiencing suicidal thoughts, the first thing is not to be afraid because you're having suicidal thoughts does not mean that you're about to take your own life by suicide. At the same time, if you feel that those suicidal thoughts progress into making plans um, towards taking action, I really encourage you to speak to a GP immediately or head down to your hospital and have a chat with someone in A&E. At the same time, many, many people experience suicidal thoughts without ever taking action or making any decision uh, in line with that action. And God, far from condemning Elijah, he treats Elijah with a biopsychosocial model of recovery. The first thing it says, um, all at once, uh, an angel touched him. He went to sleep, he, and then an angel touched him and says, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread and hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. In a psychiatric unit, the first thing that they often give to someone who's come in presenting psychosis is give them a massive meal, normally a KFC bargain bucket. Because when you haven't eaten for four days, uh, you will recognize that your mood is unstable. And very often the first thing that someone who's experiencing psychotic illness needs is a really good meal to restabilize their mood. You know, as a church, we should be taking a biopsychosocial model to those people who are experiencing mental health issues too, like God does. So if you're struggling with suicidal ideation, know that God doesn't condemn you. Men uh, are particularly at risk from suicide. In fact, suicide is the largest killer of men under the age of 50, and um, about 41,500 men die by suicide every year in the UK, which is a frightening figure. Female suicide levels have actually dropped over the last 10 years, but male suicide figures have actually stayed the same or increased slightly. And there are a number of different reasons for that. But um, talking is primarily the greatest release for those people who are um, at risk of suicide. And isolation begets isolation, and that often begets suicidal ideation. So if you're here today and you feel, as a Christian, guilty about having suicidal thoughts, my best encouragement is to talk to someone, talk to Dave, talk to one of the other senior team, and know that you won't be condemned for them. Talking about them always helps. And men's groups, uh, men's breakfasts, just going for a long walk with a couple of guys, um, those things can be a great foundation for improving men's mental health. Thank you, Will. Um, next question. To what extent are we responsible for our own mental health and its effect on us? Well, mental health isn't like physical health in terms of you've either got the flu or you haven't. But you can't do anything to really prevent the flu apart from having the flu jab, which is a bit random. Where mental health is concerned, you're not either depressed or happy Depression is not a sort of disease that you catch. It's an experience that you have. And it's, it's measured by its acuteness. And we can always be doing things that help to support our own mental and emotional health. So uh, 
I'd like to think about mental health more about physical wellness. Many of you will go to the gym, you will think carefully about the food that you eat, you will make sure that you exercise, that you take care of your personal hygiene, and you can do all of those things where mental health is also concerned. We talk about sleep hygiene, which has got nothing to do with how, how clean you are when you go to bed, it has everything to do with how much sleep you get. Sleep is a very, very important part of your mental well-being. Um, exercise is good. Um, reading is helpful. Not using your mobile phones late at night. Not having too much caffeine after 3 p.m. There are all sorts of different things you can do. Again, mindselffoundation.org has a whole list of steps that you can take to support your own mental health. At the same time, some people will experience mental health problems which cannot be mitigated by any of those steps. And um, it's really important that no one here feels responsible for a mental health condition. Some people have vulnerabilities to these things which are genetic. Some, some of these conditions develop without any scientific apparent cause. And therefore, no one should carry the burden of believing that they've somehow done something wrong and that's why they're unwell. Neither is mental health some sort of curse from God to teach you something. Um, so just be aware that um, there are things we can all do to improve our mental health, but working to improve your mental health does not mean that you are somehow vaccinated against a mental health problem. And the one in four statistic isn't that helpful in terms of the sense it gives three out of four people the idea that actually they're not impacted by mental health. Actually, mental health is a 100% statistic and we all need to be working for mental wellness all of the time, not just waiting till we get ill in order to recover. Um, we'll see if we can get two more in. Is that all right, Will? Um, so what is your advice for someone when they're having a panic attack and it just feels like someone's turned on the adrenaline in your body that you can't control no matter what you're thinking? Well, I would really sympathise. When I was sort of at my worst in 2005, I, I was having sort of between 9 and 12 panic attacks a day. And sometimes at night time, I just wake up in a panic attack, which is pretty terrifying, and then have another panic attack off, to, off of that one. The interesting thing about panic is, even though it feels desperately uncontrollable, it's far more controllable than you believe. Actually, the panic attack is manifest by hyperoxygenation of the blood. And therefore, because it's a very, very biological symptom, it can actually be reversed through a number of different steps, including diaphragmatic breathing. Um, to someone who's experiencing panic disorder, that sounds impossible because part of why panic is so powerful is because it's so surprising. But panic attack always begins with thoughts. Thoughts beget actions. And as soon as we can identify the thought quadrant as far as panic is concerned, we begin to get control. It's impossible to have a panic attack and be relaxed at the same time. And I very quickly, through the help of a brilliant psychologist, got control of my panic, and that was the first step of my recovery. And if you want to find out more about panic attacks, again, you can go to the site and find out about panic attack control and use diaphragmatic breathing to enable your blood oxygen to return to normal, and then you will feel a sort of dissation of some of those symptoms. So it's quite a practical one. In some ways, panic disorder is relatively, um, it's a relatively straightforward condition to deal with the panic part, harder to deal with the intrusive, anxious thoughts that propagate the panic. Yeah, so um, I think this is going to be the last question, if that's all right, and then it would be great to pray. Um, how can you tell the difference between mental Ill illness excuse me, and demonic activity? 
So this is a question that we get asked all the time. And actually, this idea is largely behind a lot of the stigma that Christians with mental health have, uh, issues have struggled with. Um, if you think about Sally, Sally's got a broken leg. Now, Sally comes to church with a broken leg. People's first response to Sally is not normally that the devil has broken her leg. But, but if you ask her, how involved is the devil in Sally's broken leg? Well, Sally having a broken leg is not something that will happen in heaven, because in heaven you don't break your leg, we think. And in heaven there is no more pain and no more tears. Therefore, how much of Sally's experience is actually demonic? Did the devil actually trip over Sally and that's why she broke her leg? Or is her breaking of her leg an aspect of what it is to live in a broken and fallen world? Now, I would say in all physical illness, there is some element of our spiritual reality and our spiritual suffering since none of what Sally will experience on earth will be manifest in heaven. At the same time, I think it would be wrong to suggest that the devil has been actively involved in breaking Sally's leg unless there's other evidence to make that clear in terms of actually she's manifesting some sort of demonic presence while she's coming into church with her broken leg. Imagine now Sally's instead got um, schizoaffective disorder or postpartum psychosis. She comes into church and says, actually, I've, I've got postpartum psychosis and I believe I'm Jesus, for example. Immediately, the response of people around her is, this is clearly demonic because there's some sort of spiritual manifestation to her behavior and clearly she's disordered in thought and this reminds me of all sorts of Bible passages about people with evil spirits, therefore this must be clearly demonic. But actually, what if we're wrong? What if Sally's postpartum psychosis is just the same as Sally's broken leg or Sally's schizoaffective disorder is just the same as Sally's broken leg? Well, there's, there's only a couple of ways of working out. If we treat Sally's schizoaffective disorder with lithium and we see whether or not it disappears we've demonstrated that it's actually not demonic in fact it's it's neurochemical because you cannot medicate demons now, Jesus doesn't give antipsychotic drugs to demons in the new testament he just casts them out so why would some spiritual entity suddenly disappear because you've given someone a tablet unless actually it wasn't a spiritual problem in the first place we might also see whether or not Sally's likely to have experienced anything you know, supernatural as a result or preceding her you know, encounter with this kind of disorder. And if there's no evidence of that, then there's likely to be no direct demonic attack involved in her mental health experience. As a result, the best thing to do is to treat the disorder and see what happens next, but not to make an upfront judgment that what we see is clearly a sign that this is demonic activity, because it's that experience that Sally has that makes her feel utterly isolated and broken and compounds her experience of mental ill health and makes her feel wholly stigmatized in the context of the church and wants to, to run a mile. Is mental health ever demonically related or somehow related to the spiritual realm? Yes, I'm sure. On, on rare occasions, that's true, but that's also true with physical ill health. What I'd love to see in the church is that we treat people with mental health issues with parity to those people who are struggling with physical health issues. And if we do that right, we will create the context where people who are struggling with mental ill health will feel loved, nurtured, and encouraged and not condemned and excluded. That's, that's the dream. 
Wow. Can we um, thank Will, please? I'm, I'm just sorry we haven't got more time to answer all the questions and I'm going to try and work this week to take all the questions and um, work with Will to get some answers and then circulate those. Um, we would love to pray for you all. So if you're able, would you like to stand please? And I've just asked Will whether he could pray for us. Maybe you want to open your hands as a sign of your openness to God in the knowledge that God heals today and um, we shouldn't lose our sense of expectation for what God's can, God can do in this area of emotional and mental health. So I just invite you, Holy Spirit, would you, would you come right now? Would you come and fill this place with your presence? We long for your presence, Jesus. We need your presence. And we know, Lord, with faith that you've said, just say the word and you will be healed. We want to receive from you today your healing presence to know that you are with us Come, Holy Spirit, to every person in this room, whether they are carrying a, a physical health issue or an emotional health problem or a mental health problem. We want to pray that you, Lord, by your Spirit, would come and touch them right now. Come, Lord Jesus, and meet with your people. Come, Holy Spirit. The Lord is here. Come, Holy Spirit, increase your presence. just sense there's some really specific things that the Lord wants to do. And I, there may be several people here who feel a, a weight of condemnation just related to an ongoing, maybe a, a consistent, a persistent mental health problem. I just believe the Lord wants to lift that weight from you tonight and say to you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray right now, Lord, for anyone who's burdened by this sense of condemnation, Maybe the condemnation of others or maybe their own condemnation of their self. I want to pray, Lord, for the liberation of those who feel condemned. Come, Holy Spirit, would you lift, would you lift that weight, that burden from them right now? Come, Holy Spirit, bless what you're doing. I know there's a number of you here who feel anxious and feel guilty that you are warriors. But again, I just think the Lord wants to come and he wants to bring your focus into today. And he wants you to deal with those troubles of the day, but not to let your mind range into the potential problems of the future. Come, Lord, for those who struggle with anxiety and worry, would you bring your peace? Would you give them the tools to deal with the day? Would you enable their mind to desist from heading into the near distant future. Come Holy Spirit, bless what you're doing. Lord, we want to pray for any who are under the care of psychiatrists and psychologists and are taking medication. We want to pray for them that that their therapy would be effective, that their medication would work. Give them strength, Lord, to be determined about their medication regime, to be committed to their work in therapy. Help them, Lord. And help those who help them. Come Holy Spirit. In all of this we thank you for our doctors, for our NHS, for our psychiatric nurses and carers. We praise you Lord for all of those established mechanisms of healing. We pray Father 
for those who work in this area. We pray for you to sustain them and bless them. Particularly, Lord, we want to pray for our young people's mental health. Holy Spirit, would you use the church to turn the tide for young people, for our society, for elderly people who are lonely? Lord, would you raise up the church to do your work in the world? Maybe you just would like to just place a hand on your own heart as a sign of your need for the Spirit of the Lord to touch you personally. Jesus is the ministry team. Come Holy Spirit for my mental health, I pray. Would you meet with me? Would you fill me again with your presence? I need your healing touch in my life. Maybe tonight you feel like Elijah and you're crying out to the Lord, Lord, this is too much for me. But the Lord is here. He is the comforter. He is the redeemer. He is the healer. He is the deliverer. We say, Father God, for everyone who feels like Elijah tonight, would you meet them? Would you minister to them? Would you show them your glory and love? Bless what you're doing, Lord. Bless what you're doing. We're going to continue just to stay in the presence of God and move to a time of worship. Um, But if you're here tonight and you just want someone to pray with you, then either ask someone around you who you know, who you trust, or come over and I'm going to be over here with the, the ministry team. Do please come and get some prayer. Let's keep our eyes focused on the Lord and press into him, his healing power as we worship him now.